I mean, I think he's going to go visit him today. Is that still the plan? Uh, so pray for, pray for their family. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to, uh, to join me in Exodus chapter number 18. Exodus chapter number 18. If you're a guest of ours, we are working our way through the book of Exodus. And uh, knowing that I only have a few Sundays together with you, my, my goal was to get us to Mount Sinai. Um, where, where it seems like Israel camps out for a very long time. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're at Mount Sinai from Exodus chapter 19 all the way through the rest of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers. Um, so, boy, this is, a, this is quite the journey that we've taken. And in order to get to Exodus, I'm sorry, in order to get to Sinai, um, I was going to skip chapter 18 completely. Um, and just go straight to chapter 19. Um, and as I sat down to, to uh, begin, la- I was working last week on, on the message, thinking this is going to be easy. I mean, chapter 16 and 17, they talk about, um, about Yahweh's testing of Israel and how he provides for them, and, and he shows his power and his provisions and even his patience as he tests them. And that's really important to Israel's story. And then if we skip chapter 18, they're landing at Mount Sinai, which is where God's going to give them the the law. He's going to give them the the blueprints for the tabernacle and for everything they're going to need as they go into the promised land. And so like, I'm looking at like what happens before chapter 18 and what happens after chapter 18. Like those are really important elements to the story. So we could just skip skip it. So I started working on a message, and the Lord really, really provoked my heart and asked this question to me. So you're going to skip an entire chapter just because you don't think it's relevant? And I was like, all right, okay, let me go back and read it. And so I went back and reread chapter 18, just planning to skip over it, and it was the, it was actually the very last verse of the chapter that really caught my attention. And um, I believe led the Lord, excuse me, and I believe that's why the Lord led me to bringing together, um, to to put this message together. Because it it, it really is a family conversation between a man of God and his meddling father-in-law. And you know how, you know how that goes, you know. God, God gave us in-laws to make sure that they correct uh, the things in our lives that need to be corrected, whether we ask for them or not. Uh, and they do a great job. Um, but as I, as I started to work on this message, it was kind of like, there's a purpose behind it, Brian. And so I, I, I sat down and began to ask the Lord what he, what he wanted to share. And so as chapter 18 opens, and we're not going to read all of the chapter, but it, it opens with a man named Jethro who we have seen. This is an echo. We've seen Jethro before. He's Moses' father-in-law, and he's bringing Moses' wife and two sons to meet him. It's the first time Moses has seen his wife and sons since, if you were here with us from the beginning, there was this bloody incident that took place where Zipporah had to, um, she had to do a work in Moses' life to keep him alive. The very next day, apparently, or soon after, Moses and Aaron, his brother, they go back to Egypt while Zipporah, Moses' wife, and their two children, they go back to Jethro's home. And so he hasn't seen his wife since everything that has taken place. And Jethro comes to meet them. And Moses begins to tell Jethro 
everything that has taken place. Would you join me in verse number 8? Verse number 8 of chapter 18 says this, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people, meaning how Egypt dealt with Israel. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is, this is really, really an important moment in Israel's history because this is the beginning of their very purpose of being brought out of Egypt. You may not know this, but, but Jethro was a priest in Midian, but he was not a priest of Yahweh. So he was a priest who had, who had stood before the people and had gone and had sacrificed and had served before a group of people on behalf of other gods. And now he hears of what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has done. And this leader and believer of other gods says, wow, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods and I'll serve him. And he offers sacrifices to him. We see the conversion of a priest. This is why Israel was brought out of Egypt for this very reason. And it was just a testimony. All it was was Moses telling Jethro what God had done in his life and in the life of his people. And I'll tell you something. That's what we need to be doing, church. We need to be telling others of the work of Christ in our lives and in the lives of those that we love. Listen, we, we may not all have the same testimony. We may not share the same words, but we're all testifying of the same God. So as believers, we need, to, we need to go out and not be silent of the work of God because that was the very reason that we have been brought to salvation, to know our God and to make him known. This conversion of Jethro is a really, really big deal. In fact, it's an echo to what didn't happen in the life of Pharaoh, another leader of people who worshiped other gods. If you were here with us, you would remember at the end of the seventh plague, Pharaoh recognized who Yahweh was, and he said, you are a just God, and I have sinned against you. So there was this recognition, and almost as if Pharaoh himself could say, now I know about Yahweh, but the difference was Pharaoh hardened his heart. While Jethro here, he confesses. And he celebrates and he sacrifices for who Yahweh is. And they, they come together to eat as an act of worship. Isn't that so interesting? They come together to eat as an act of worship. Because that's what the church does too. We come together 
And we enjoy the Lord's Supper and communion as an act of worship for what our God has done and who our God is. The next day, though, Jethro comes out to witness the regular practices of Israel. So Moses, he sits in the morning and it appears that like everybody that has a question comes to Moses to bring their concern. And, and, and we may think that that sounds so foolish, but I have to remember, hey, Caitlin, how are you? Hey, Jeff, got the little baby. Oh, that's so cool. Hey, everybody. Wow. Totally lost track, whatever I was saying. Like, that's awesome. I'm so glad to see you guys. Are you feeling okay, Caitlin? Good, good. Jeff, are you getting sleep? Okay, all right. This group had spent their entire lives, right, as slaves under a, a foreign king named Pharaoh. Now they've been released and they don't know how to govern themselves. They don't know how to live as people of Yahweh unless they're told how to live that way. And so they're, they're sitting there and asking Moses questions. And it's really interesting. If you were to, if you were to look, uh, there's, there, if you were to jump to numbers, there's this time where the people, um, even after they've received the commands of God, they don't know what to do. And so they go to Moses and say, Moses, what do we do about this man who was picking up sticks on the, the Sabbath? Because they didn't know what, how to handle him. And Moses goes to God and Yahweh tells him, this is exactly how to handle it so this is a learning curve for them but look at verse number 13 the next day moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around moses from morning till evening when moses's father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people he said what is this that you are doing for the people why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening verse 15 and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And, and when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So Jethro asks the question, why do you do this? Moses answers the question, this is what we do. Do you notice anywhere in there a question where Moses says, and what do you think about that, father-in-law? What is your opinion on what we're doing? There's, there's, no, there's no question like that, but Jethro immediately inserts his thoughts. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And this, is, this is really interesting because this is actually an echo that throws us back to creation. When is creation, when we're back in creation, do you remember as God is creating, he says, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And then all of a sudden God says, and this is not good. What did God say this was not good about? Adam being alone. Trying to rule creation alone. And now Jethro is referencing similar things. And it's more than just Moses like Jethro was actually saying, it's not just, it, Jethro didn't say it's just bad for you. He said it's bad for you and for all the people with you. And he counseled Moses on what to do. And I'm going to skip to verse 21, if you would. Verse 21. It says, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, 
And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. So Jethro counsels Moses, divide the leadership among the people. And if you're just reading along and you don't know the end of the chapter, you might almost think that Jethro's setting this up so that he could be a part of this leadership structure, like he's working his way in to get close to the top guy. But that's not at all what happens because we know he, he leaves. He's not trying to win a position of leadership. He's not trying to, trying to gain authority. He's trying to give practical counsel to Moses for the benefit of this people that he was standing in front of. And it was, it was when I read that last verse that Jethro was concerned for this group of people even though he was going to be leaving. That's when the Lord said, we can't skip this chapter. So I said, okay, well, then what would you want me to say? You know that I care for the people I stand in front of, and you also know, Lord, that my ministry in this particular place is coming to a close because I'm following you. And here's what I have to share. I came to Mount Carmel, and I think many of you know this, from a ministry that was built on the personality of a very charismatic leadership. But I also saw what happened when those, those personalities, those captivating speakers were no longer present. The, the church really, really struggled because it was very much built on who the leader was. Because I, I think people went to church for the preacher, not for Jesus. And I never wanted that to happen when I came here. Like I have really tried to live out John chapter 3 verse 30 which says he must increase and I must decrease and I, I have really tried to live out Colossians chapter 3 which says please allow me to be hidden hide my life behind the cross I have really wanted Jesus and only Jesus to be the centerpiece of this ministry I don't want this to be about me and, and when I leave you're going to have to change one I think one web page that has my name and picture on it and a few legal documents, but there's nothing here with my name on it because it's never been about me. And I say that because I want, I want to be clear as we share today that this isn't about, this isn't about me. And prior to coming to Mount Carmel, I'd spent about 20 years in full-time ministry and it was at a very large church. And I had done many things. I had served as the administrator of a Christian school. I had served as, a, as the youth pastor for a youth group of about 400 with maybe 100 adult volunteers. And I had planned a national youth conference. And, and I knew that my gifts, I, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but I'm just, I had recognized the gifts that God had given me in my life were charity, teaching, and administration. Like, I recognized that. And, and when I was called to come to a church that was smaller than the youth group that I led, I really thought, oh, this will be easy. These past seven years have been more demanding, more consuming, and heavier than I ever could have imagined. There is an expectation and a weight that rests on the, the shoulders of a lead pastor that it's really, it's unexplainable, and it's nothing that you can prepare for. And for those of you who have family members who have served in that position, you know. 
And I don't say that for your sympathy because I'm not complaining. Like I have been called to do this and, and the Lord has provided. He has strengthened and he has always been enough. But this is a demanding position. Since moving here, I've, I've had my heart checked out twice. I've lost my hair. I'm on blood pressure medication. And uh, honestly, to just to be transparent, I've, I've battled times of darkness. And I know what I'm describing that's not unique to me. There are other people in here who would say, you know, my job is very demanding of me too, and I totally understand that. And I'm not in any way trying to diminish that. But like when you're calling, when your life is shaped by a commitment to bringing people and leading people and serving people to a closer and a deeper relationship with God, Satan loves to attack. And spiritual battles are, they're not easy to describe, but they're very real. And so after being here for a time, I, uh, I came to a realization on my own that what I was experiencing as a pastor was not healthy for me, neither physically nor spiritually. And I began digging into scripture and trying to understand more about like, why was I struggling so much? And I think, feel like the Lord very clearly led me to view and value elder leadership within a, within a church rather than the model of a ministry uh, weight heavy on a, on a senior pastor. And, for the entire year of 2021, I took our deacons through what the Lord was teaching me in the scriptures about elder leadership. And by the time we completed that study, uh, each of them was convinced that elder leadership was the direction that the Lord was wanting to take this church. A vote, a vote at the end of the year by the congregation revealed that there were some who were not yet ready to move forward on this. And we haven't talked about it since the end of 2021. But I will tell you, and I'm not telling you this for my benefit, because I'm leaving, you know that, right? I, it's not for my benefit that I'm saying this. I'm saying it for the benefit of your pastoral team and for the good of the church, for the people. Placing the same type of expectations on a new lead pastor that I was faced with will be crushing to him and counterproductive to you as a church. God has brought gifted people into this church to be equipped and empowered to carry some of the weight that your lead pastor shouldn't have to assume. So as, as, I'm, as I'm thinking through this, and again, working through what it is, and I was like, well, Lord, what, what, what do you want me to share with the church? And began to write down a few things that I, I would think, like if Jethro, you know, were to show up, or if Paul were to come make a visit and sit down and, and write a letter, like what type of evaluation could Mount Carmel be given by them? And I, I think it's very important because a, a wise evaluation offers correction and, and direction and vision, right? So like, I'm, I'm sitting back and thinking like, Lord, what would you want your church here. And I don't mean just for Mount Carmel. I think this is applicable across the board to, to any Christian, uh, to, to any church, but, but really specifically, I'm thinking of this, this body. I've seen things up close for seven years, and I'm not speaking for my benefit, but I have five things I'd love to share with you this morning. As you move into a new season, and please, I hope that you understand this is said with humility. Um, I want to say it with gentleness and I want to say it because I love you to death. Number one, remember the priestly role of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of every believer. 
There are still some religions in the world that require people to go to a priest in order to gain access to God. But we know 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5, says there's one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. And what that means is a pastor does not have some special or exclusive access to the presence of God. Every single believer in here is welcomed and actually invited to come boldly before the throne. You know what this means is, if you have a prayer request, don't, don't wait to try to get a hold of your pastor. Tell the people around you. They are priests, just like you. The Holy Spirit rests in everyone out here, not just in one guy who stands behind this pulpit. Like, if you have a need, you know the greatest thing you could do is find the closest believer next to you and say, will you pray with me? If you hear of a need, the greatest thing you could do is say, let's pray about that right now. And guess what? When a believer in this room places their hand on your shoulder, they are going to the same God with the same priest who has the same power of the Holy Spirit in them that any pastor in the world does. I think sometimes we have this Old Testament picture of priests and we transfer to the New Testament idea of a pastor and that is so wrong. Jesus ripped down the veil. We have access to the Holy of Holies. No one has to go on our behalf and Peter says, you are a kingdom of priests. So value one another and value the other spiritual leaders. I, I I say this only for your benefit. But there was a time here when there were three pastors and one of the pastors went and made a hospital visit. And while he was making a hospital visit, the question was asked whether Pastor Brian was also going to make a hospital visit. Imagine how it made that, that one feel. Like, like, I'm glad you're here, but when is, when, is, when is the other one coming? Like, no. Like, we have to understand that there's nothing exclusively exciting about the pastor making a visit. You as a church can do those things. We sometimes value certain spiritual gifts above others, which is sometimes why we'll value certain spiritual people above others, but that is not healthy thinking. Like, I think it's sad, but I know this to be true. There are many pastors who will not tell their church when they're going to be out of town. Because they don't think the church will come if they're gone. Hey, listen, if you're coming for Jesus, whoever stands behind this, this spot is going to be able to speak the word to you. Please value that. I think when we, when we put this pedestal of a pastor or even pastors, we, we undervalue Every saint, every believer and their gifts. And, we, and then we lift this man onto a place where it's like, that's, that's where Jesus needs to be. Jesus is the head of this church. So let's all value the priestly role and the Holy Spirit power that each of us has. Number two, prioritize small groups where deeper relationships can be built and opportunities to serve and care for one another are offered. I, I, I think so many of us, we fool ourselves into thinking as long as we bring our family to Sunday morning worship, we're going to be okay. 
But you need more than just this large community of people. We need this large community of people. But we need more than this large community of people. We need deeper relationships that are intentionally made by not just gathering together, but by living life out together. In fact, I would dare say that if every person in this church was plugged into a small group, the shepherding work of the church would happen organically rather than having to be organizationally. The problem is we're not connected to people. We show up for church where we look at the back of the head of the people in front of us. We take two or three minutes in the service to say good morning to the people around us, and then we go home. And because those deeper relationships haven't been made, when there is a need, when there is a tragic event, when there is a sudden expectation or suddenly unexpected moment in our life, we turn to the church, but we don't have these deeper relationships built. And so it's just this group, this mass of people who are already busy in their own lives. And, and what happens is when, when those times come, we have one of two reactions. Either we reach out to the pastor because he's the only connection we truly have in the church. Or we retreat in isolation because we feel like, well, nobody even cared that nobody even offered to help. But see, I don't, I don't think that's the way it has to work. I think if we were to be together in these groups, and I don't mean just a Bible study group, I mean a group that does life together. And we wouldn't have to be turning to the organization. We would turn to those who are organically a part of our life. I think our meals ministry is really, really good at this because like there's, there's some people who when they have a need, they'll call the church office and say, hey, I've, I've, I've got a need. Could you send out a, a message to the church to say drop off some meals? And there are ladies in the church who are, man, they're right on that. And I appreciate that so much. And you don't appreciate it until you need it. So thank you for those of you who are participating. But what I love even more is when I show up to someone's home to make a visit and say, hey, do you need some meals? And they say, no, our, our, our family, community of people, they've already cared for us. Like, that's the way it should work. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way if all we do is show up in this really big group of people and we don't get connected into their lives. So please, may I encourage you, prioritize a group within the church with whom you can connect and build deeper relationships. And that's where the service also of the church should spring from. And, and may I say this just is like a total like sidebar. If you go to the hospital, please let someone know. Because what happens is sometimes people go to the hospital, stay in the hospital, and then get released from the hospital, and then get upset that no one came to visit them in the hospital. But no one knew they were in the hospital. So please, if you go to the hospital, we want to know so that we can pray for you, make it known to the church, and, and uh, make a visit. Okay. Number three. On behalf of your future pastoral team, <laughs> provide avenues for personal and spiritual growth opportunities to fire up gospel passion and healthy rest and refreshment. I would never say this if I was staying. I just want you to know this because this is really about your pastoral team. But I will say it because I'm leaving because you need to hear it, I think. After serving for almost seven years, I'm convinced that there are a few things that need to be a part of every pastor's schedule in, in a cycle of two to three years. A leadership conference, a marriage getaway, a missions trip, and a sabbatical. 
I'm convinced for you to have healthy leadership that that has got to be a part of their, of their schedule every two to three years. Leadership conferences that will help promote um, personal and spiritual growth. And I, know why, and I know why it's not going to be talked about because what the pastor doesn't want to do, the pastor who looks at the budget of the church and says, oh, we're not hitting budget, the last thing he's going to do is say, hey, could I, could I go to this conference even though it's really going to cost some money? But see, it's an investment. Pastor Mike, I want to publicly apologize that I have not done that for the two of us. I should have gone, I should have, on, on your behalf and my, I should have made that more of a priority. And so I personally want to apologize, but I think that this church needs to make sure that this becomes a regular part of the schedule of the pastoral team is leadership conferences and marriage getaways. Again, the thing is, you know, when, when there are marriage issues, those marriage issues are brought to someone that you want to make sure has a good marriage and has, has a healthy marriage. And I promise you, just because we're pastors and we open up the Bible, it doesn't mean that we don't go through times where our marriage will, will struggle. Especially like Jamie, she would probably tell you that it struggles more than my, 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 my marriage is perfect. Uh, I don't know about Jamie's, but. Uh... But again, there's this, there's this hesitation to say, would you, would you help invest into our marriage? Because you don't want to ask for that. But you need pastors who have healthy marriages. How else are they going to pr provide help for you and, and yours? Missions trips. Missions trips, they have to, we have to keep our gospel, out, our gospel eyes outward and not just hear what's right in front of me. Think, I think your pastors need to be on the mission field visiting our missionaries regularly. And then a sabbatical. And again, this is something I would never ask for if I was staying, but... A sabbatical is, is, a, is a lengthy time away of just simply saying, I'm going to get out of the day-to-day -day stuff, and I'm going to ask the Lord, what kind of forward-looking vision do you want for us? But, like I see, asking for that sounds so selfish. So I would never do it. But there are times, you see Jesus getting alone all the time with his Father. And I think, your, I think your pastoral team, your future pastoral team, needs those set times away. And, and, I'll, and I'll just add one last thing. Do more than just make them available. Make sure someone, make sure someone is there to, that they are taking advantage of the opportunities. Because what's going to happen is you're going to say, well, you can do these things. And then what I know, what I've said is, I'm too busy to do that. The church needs me. It's not fair for me to be away from the church that I'm serving to do all these other things. But hey, I'll tell you, that, I'll just be honest with you. I regret the fact that I've only been on the mission field one time in these six and a half years. I regret that. I regret never taking time away with just Jamie and myself to just, to just get away. I regret not taking a, just a, a lengthy sabbatical. And, and our deacons a few years ago said, hey, yeah, pastor, you can have a couple of weeks. And I took less than one and I was back in the office again. That's why I think they need someone to walk through with them to make sure that these things are happening. And I, I'm not trying to raise this level of pastoral uh, promise to promise. I'm not. Like, we're, we're saints of God just like you. But there is a spiritual weight that comes that is just really, really hard to describe. Next. Determined to move forward in the mission with unity while not requiring uniformity. 
So one of the traditions that I was told uh, that Mount Carmel has is that the, the leadership seeks to find a unanimous decision before presenting something to the congregation. And I have watched this principle serve as a truly unifying factor at times, but I have also watched this principle lead to disharmony against good godly men. But that, that's nothing new, like the apostle, the, the disciples argued while they're in Jesus's presence. You have, um, you have Paul basically telling, you know, separating from Barnabas. You have Paul telling John Mark to go home. And, and, and you, you see Paul standing up next to Peter in the book of Acts. Like, so disharmony is, or disunity is not something that, that has to be completely avoided at all costs. The mission is what's important. There's over 100 churches in Page County. You know what? A lot of them, if not most of them, believe that Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. Yet, if you ever try to get those churches together under one roof, it's not good. It's not easy, I should say. There's the jostling of, like, well, are we going to do it my way or are we going to do it your way? And it's like, I mean, like, who cares about some of this stuff? Like, we don't want to get so worried about what is outside of the mission that we lose focus on the mission itself and slow down. So let me encourage you to move forward on these important matters that our church is bringing to you and do it in unity without saying everything's got to be this way. I realize that there are things in our church that not everyone agrees with, and that's okay. We didn't come together today because we agree on everything. We came today because we agree on Jesus, right? That's who we're supposed to follow. And you are believers with the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the wisdom of the word available to you. And if something is contrary to the word, we don't do it because that means we're not following our king. But what we have to be careful of is we don't allow a tradition or a personal preference to rise to the level of scriptural authority. Unity is what this church truly needs. And last, recognize the need to share resources in the unified mission of the faith family of Mount Carmel. Again, this is something I would probably avoid because people do not like to hear the pastor talk about money. The only people in the church who like the pastor to talk about money are the ones who are already giving and they want everybody else to give to. Other than that, people are like, you don't need to talk about that between me and God. We have this idea that it's my money, my time, my gifts, they're mine. I'll do what I want to with it. And it's that, it's that American individualistic society. And we are, we are, I don't I guess I could use the word curse. We, it's very much all over us. I want you to think with me for just a moment. Are we really a family? If our family, if Jamie and I sat down and we made a budget based on our income, but then I went and took some of our money to, that was supposed to be for the groceries, and I went and got roses, a new outfit, and some nice jewelry for Jamie, and I brought it home and said, hey, I love you. I just want you to know how generous I am. And she would say, thank you. Where did you get that money? Well, that was supposed to be for the groceries. Was that a wise decision? That's not a wise decision. Does it show my generosity? Well, sure, it shows my generosity, but it affects our family. It affects whether we're going to have something to eat that week or whether we're going to have to take, uh, take it from somewhere else so that we can have money to eat that week. And, and for this faith family, just so you know, and some of you may not know this, but every year a budget is presented on how this faith 
family will spend its money to accomplish the mission that we believe God has called us to. And over the last couple of years, I think over the last three years, we haven't hit that budget. And because we haven't hit that budget, we've had to cut many things out of the budget. But here's what I know to be true about the people in this room. You're very generous. Like last week, we told you about this young lady who lost everything before going to college. There was a line of people waiting to help this young lady. She was overwhelmed with your generosity because this is a generous church. The reason we're not hitting our budget has nothing to do with generosity. The reason I think that we're not hitting our budget is that we invest our primary resources in the kingdom of God, but we do that in an individual way rather than as a faith family. Like, for example, when I, when I give my primary resources for the kingdom work, I give it through the church in tithes and offerings. Notice I didn't say I give to the church. I don't give to this church. I give through this church to the Lord. And I also listen for ways that the Holy Spirit moves in me to help individuals and but I, I only give to individuals once, my, once the commitment to my faith family is actually cared for. Like there's times where we'll have missionaries and even ministries that will come through and, 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 and speak about opportunities that, that they have. And, and to, man, I love that. And I love the way our church responds to that. And I hope the Holy Spirit continues to, to move you to share your resources for these folks who are out on mission for God. But it's important to keep in mind our faith family. We have a budget that is committed to world missions and to the needs of Page County right here. And although this is a very generous church, this faith family has had to cut our budget for missions and local missions over the last couple of years, even though we're generous. And it's more than just money. I'd say the same thing for time and spiritual gifts. There are some who feel like they just don't have the time, the margin, or the energy to serve at church, but it has nothing to do with them being lazy or unconcerned about the mission. Often it's because we're engaged in very good ministries in opportunities elsewhere, and it leaves someone weary on the weekend. I just want to come and be ministered to, and I totally understand that. But here's my encouragement. Set up your schedule so that you find the time, margin, and energy to serve with your faith family. The problem is sometimes we're so busy, we just don't have time for that. And when that's true, I would, I would ask you to prayerfully examine where your time is spent, asking the Lord, is there some way that we can find time to serve with our church family, with our faith family? Lord, even if it means adjusting our schedule or saying no to something good or stepping out into faith, like, I don't really know if I can do this, but listen— the reason you're here today is because this faith family needs you. They need your gift. You were created, gifted, and you were brought here. Because Jesus said, I need that man, that woman, that teenager, that child. I need them for my body to be complete. There's, there's a lot of people who walk in the back doors sit and then walk out the back doors again 
and, and I don't think that service just takes place in this room, but this is, a, this is an area to serve, I would really, really want to encourage you. Find a way to serve with your faith family inside or outside the walls of this building. I know that all this has got to point back to Jesus, and so... Uh, I, I looked and I'm trying to think through like how, how Jesus lived his life and it's like Jesus he valued every person in the kingdom regardless of who they were and, and I was telling uh, Johnny Gregory's class this morning the very first person Jesus sent that I can think of that he sent out as like a sent out one as an apostle the first one to be sent out was a woman at the well who didn't have the greatest of reputations but Jesus valued her for who she was we need to value each other. Jesus had multitudes that followed him, but his, his primary focus was on the small group of 12 who took his mission and continued it when he was gone. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, so he developed relationships with people like Mary and Lazarus and Martha. He noticed when people were weary and hungry, and he cared for their needs. And he cared for himself physically. He called tax collectors and fishermen and tradesmen into one community. No doubt they argued about how to do it, but they had one mission for which they were called. And it got all messed up when they took their eyes off of Jesus. He gave everything he had for the church. The church is Jesus' bride. He didn't choose us because we're pretty. He chose us. And Jesus makes us pretty. And he does that by giving everything he had. The church is far from perfect. This church is far from perfect. But Jesus loves you to death. So do I. So should we. We've got to be committed to one another as the church. So here's my, my final thought. As you enter a new season, I encourage you to wisely evaluate commitment and investment and engagement would you please as you enter this new season commit to praying for one another be present where the church is and strive for unity there's going to be things that you'll probably disagree with when maybe you don't think somebody should be on the search team or you think you should be on the search team or you think this should happen or you think that should happen can i just encourage you work for unity within the church and invest your resources in the mission and in the needs of your faith family this church needs you and engage your spiritual gifts inside and outside of the gathering man i don't know i feel really really awkward having said all of that because i feel like I don't know. I don't know how I feel. I, I, I feel this awkward tension almost as if, like, I'm try, want to help you, and I know that that's pointing out some areas where I think really we could give attention to. But I'm, I hope that you know I'm only doing it because I love you. And it has been an amazing time together with you. I'll be back in Exodus 19 next week, and we're going to talk about um, the people arriving at Mount Sinai. But for whatever reason, the Lord didn't want me to skip this one chapter to try to give his church practical counsel on how we become more like him. We'll close in just a moment with the song, Jesus, Only Jesus.
because really that's what it's all about. Ultimately, everything that was said today points us back to who Jesus is for us, to who Jesus wants to be. He wants to be known by others. Would you pray with me?